Look with me at 1 John chapter 2. We'll begin reading at verse 18, and we'll read through verse 25. John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. Let me pray now for our message. Oh, Lord Jesus, what a truth it is that we just sang, that all we have is Christ, but in Christ we have all we need. And so we are so grateful, Father, that you sent your only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will never perish, but will have everlasting life. We're so grateful, Lord Jesus, that you willingly incarnated and lived a righteous life and died a horrific death, and that you raised again from death and ascended to be at the right hand of your Father. We're so grateful to you, Holy Spirit, for the part you have played in every single part of the process. We're grateful to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for giving us Christ, because in him we have everything. And I pray that today, Lord, as we look at the reality of spiritual warfare that is all around us, whether we see it or not, I pray that we would grow in the confidence today that in you we have all we need, and in you we have no need to fret, we have no need to fear. So please help us to understand our enemy a little bit better today, but more so, I pray that you would help us to understand the power of our Savior and the salvation you have brought to us. We pray for these things and we hope for these things in the mighty and merciful name of Jesus Christ, amen. From the very earliest days of the church, there have been deceivers who were part of us and yet who separated from us and then who tried to deceive us away from Christ by teaching us lies about him. There are people throughout the history of the church who have sought to persuade the people of God to embrace alternative ideas about the gospel and in this way to break our fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They would not put it that way, but that's precisely what they are doing. This persistent attempt to deceive really matters because truth really matters. And the reason that truth really matters is because understanding and embracing the truth about God is vital to actually knowing God. God does not reduce to ideas. If you just think certain ideas, it doesn't mean that you automatically know God, but God communicates himself through ideas. 
God communicates himself through truth, and it is not possible to reject that truth and claim to know God. That is impossible. To know God, you must embrace and believe and rejoice in the truth about him, because to embrace and rejoice and believe the truth about him is to rejoice in him, in God himself. In most other religions, perhaps all other religions, the particulars of what one believes are really not that important. Because when you're worshiping something that's false, it's not really that big of a deal to just change the details to suit your needs. So let me just give you three quick examples. Hindus worship many gods. Some say three million, some say 30 million. I've heard figures as high as 300 million. I think what that means is nobody knows how many gods Hindu people worship. They worship a lot of gods. Some of those gods are very different from each other, and that doesn't bother Hindus at all. Hindus have no problem with that. And they don't mind if you want to add your God to the count at all. It's not the issue. They would not care that any of us are Christians. Where they have an issue is where we will not acknowledge that there are other gods. And, and where they have an issue is where we begin to say our God is the only God and you must believe in him to be right with him. And when we begin to evangelize, Hindus have problems. But with regard to the historical and theological details of their faith, it, it really does not matter to them. I'm not saying that no Hindus have convictions. I'm just saying that in the end, these things can be adjusted because that's the way it works when you're worshiping false gods. Buddhism is in some ways not really a religion, but more of a philosophy, but it functions as a religion. Buddhists also don't really care that much about the historical details of their faith. If you could show that the Buddha never even existed, it would not affect Buddhism much at all. What they're more concerned about is their philosophical ideas and the embrace and promotion of those ideas. And what they're concerned about is when people try to convert them away from that. This latest terror attacks in Sri Lanka, I'm not sure who did that. I wasn't really able to pay close attention to that. But I'll tell you, Sri Lanka is mainly Buddhists. And Buddhists in Sri Lanka can be as fierce as any Hindu or Muslim you've ever met. You begin to try to evangelize and change their lives, and you'll find out what they really think is important. But what is not important to them is historical detail. It's just not that important. Tradition matters, but the details can be adjusted. Even Muslims, who care more about the historical and theological details of their faith, would readily acknowledge that the Quran blatantly contradicts itself. All you have to do is read it to see that that's true. And so Muslims developed this doctrine called the doctrine of abrogation. The doctrine of abrogation allows them to argue this, that later revelation supersedes earlier revelation. So let's say something happened or something was taught in 600 AD, and then something contradictory happened or was taught in 650 AD, well they just say the later thing is true, the earlier thing is not true. The doctrine of abrogation. This shows that they care more about historical detail, but they have a way of replacing facts with facts. They have the way of replacing certain so-called truths with just another set of so-called truths. This will simply not work for Christians. The historical and theological details of our faith really matter because we are worshiping the one true God. And the one true God has revealed himself through creation, through his speech, and through the history of his people. So if you begin to alter the details of creation, alter the details of his speech, alter the details of, his, of the history of his people, you are altering the truth about God and you're creating, you are committing a great fundamental sin against God. You're lying about him. When you worship the truth, you can't adjust the truth, you see? So imagine that I was 
an orphan that had never been adopted, never had a family, and imagine that in my desire to have a family, I just made one up, and I pretended that I had a mom and a dad and siblings, and I told people about them and basically just made up lies about them, it would not be that big of a deal for me to just adjust all the details because I would not be talking about real people. I'd be talking about figments of my imagination. But if I had grown up in a real family with a real dad and a real mom and real siblings, as I did, then the details of how I tell my story matter. And if I was caught publicly lying about my mom and dad and my siblings and the history of our, our family, I would be in trouble. There, there would be a price to pay. In fact, I was thinking about earlier this morning, I remember some guy who got really famous publishing a book. He became one of those Oprah Book of the Month Club kind of people. He published a story about his background and just all this dramatic stuff that had happened to him. Great book. It just turns out that it was pretty much all lies. But he was telling lies about real people. He was telling lies about his real mom, his real dad, real siblings. And when they read the book, they went out in public and said, no, 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 all lies. You see, when something is true, you can't so easily tell lies about it. And this dynamic works in the religious world. If you're worshiping false things, just adjust what you believe. No big deal. But if you're worshiping the one true God, it just isn't that simple. Truth matters because God exists. And God has revealed himself through history, through speech, through creation. And we can't just change the details. We cannot. You probably remember that John wrote his letters, all three of them, to combat some false teachers and their teaching who were telling lies about Jesus and trying to entice the church away from Jesus. They had refashioned the gospel and they're trying to persuade the church to follow them and not to follow the apostles. John wrote then, to protect and prosper the faith of the people of God, to protect and prosper the fellowship that they had with God, to protect and prosper and bring to fullness the joy that the people of God have in God through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why John wrote. But this week as I reflected on how John went about his business, I was really kind of stunned by something that I saw and I just want to share that with you. Notice that even though John's motive was to protect and prosper the church against false teachers, he did not begin by speaking about those false teachers. Rather, he began with the people of God. From chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 17, he's addressing the church and speaking to them. Along the way, he's dealing with issues that the teachers were teaching here and there, but mainly he's speaking to the church and saying three things. Church... You want to outfit yourself to deal with false teaching and antichrist? First of all, chapter one, confess your sins. Acknowledge that you have sin. Acknowledge that you have not done what is right before the Lord. Get your heart right before God and he will be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And when you're cleansed, you'll have eyes to see. Second thing John says is walk with God. Submit your life to him. Live in the light. Don't just believe truths about the light. Live in the light. And then third thing John says is love each other. Confess your sins, submit to God, love each other. After he said that, he finally gets around to talking directly about the false teachers. He doesn't say a direct word about them until chapter 2, verse 18. And I find this very instructive, beloved. I think that this teaches us that the issue of clinging to truth 
has as much to do with how we live as it has to do with what we believe. We say we believe certain things, but we fail to live in the light of God, then our disobedience actually obscures our ability to understand the truth, to delight in the truth, to love the truth, to love the Lord, and to defend the gospel. As Jesus said in John 3.20, everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and they do not come to the light because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. Evil living is at the root of unbelief because evil living, just walking in disobedience to God, actually blinds us to the things of God and to the beauty of God. The more you reject God's wisdom and walk in your own ways, rather than his, you become more and more and more and more blind. It's like you have a spiritual eye disease. And if you keep on going down that road, someday you're going to get to the place where you cannot see anymore. Therefore, if we want to know the truth and believe the truth and love the truth and defend the truth with the right blend of humility and boldness, then we have to begin by looking within, beloved. Confess your sins. Walk with your God. Love one another. Then, then you will be ready. Then you will be outfitted to look outward. Then you'll be ready to assess what various people are teaching about Jesus and to see whether or not it accords with the truth. Oh, beloved, I think this wisdom is so important for us. So, so important. Especially if some of you love apologetics and evangelism. You love arguing about the things of the faith. There's a place for that. Please hear the order that the Apostle John wants us to walk in. Get your heart right first and then turn your heart toward others. You know, Ravi Zacharias is probably one of my favorite apologists. Apologists, if you don't know, is just someone who makes arguments for the Christian faith and seeks to defend it, hopefully in love. But one of the reasons I love watching videos of Ravi Zacharias is because of his disposition toward the people that he's debating and arguing with. It is so clear that he loves them. It is so clear that he has a kind of respect for them as people who are fashioned in the image of God. Here's a man who has been in God's presence and then argues for the truth with God's spirit about him. That's what we need, beloved. Begin with our own hearts before God and then we'll be ready to look outward and deal with others. And so what I want to do this morning with all of that in mind now is look at what John does say in chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Next week, I'm going to return to this same text, and I want to highlight verse 20, where John talks about the anointing that we have received. I want to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit in the perseverance of the church. But for today, I just want us to get an overview of what John is saying in this section. And as he often does, rather than just teaching in a straight line here, John teaches in two cycles. He says something about the false teachers, then he says something about the church in, in verses 18 through 21. And then in verses 22 to 25, he circles back and he says something about the deceivers. He says something about the church, cycle one and cycle two. So let's begin with the first cycle and let me read again for you verses 18 to 21. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, because of their presence and activity, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. 
but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. John is the only one in the New Testament to use this term, the last hour. It is the last hour. But Jesus, Paul, James, Peter, and the author of Hebrews all use this term, the last days, and I think Basically, they mean the same thing. I think it's just John's way of talking about the same time period. And to put it as simply as possible, the last days refers to the time between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. Or as Don Carson likes to say, it's just a time of fulfillment. It's the time where all of the promises of God in Christ in this age of the earth come to pass, the last hour. I think this is what John has in mind. And I think he was persuaded, as were the other apostles, that the final movement of history had begun, and he offers as evidence of this fact the presence and activity of many antichrists who had gone into the world seeking to deceive the church away from Christ. Now this word antichrist is also unique to John. It's only used six times in the Bible. All six times are used by John, two in this passage, four elsewhere. I do think though that other people talked about this person called the Antichrist, Paul himself probably taught in the same city to which John was writing, to the people of of Ephesus, he probably taught about the same person, but he called this person the man of lawlessness. We'll have to wait another time to really investigate what Paul meant by that. But as for John, the word Antichrist just means someone who opposes Christ, or the Greek word can also mean someone who is there instead of Christ. So an antichrist is someone who is opposing Christ or someone who props themselves up in the place of Christ. It's an opposition to Christ or a replacement for Christ. Either one could rightly be called the antichrist and I think John has both of these kind of of people in mind. Paul warned the church of Ephesus and that whole surrounding area that one day a very powerful opponent of Christ would arise. This is the man he called the man of of lawlessness. And this is what I think John has in mind when he said, you have all heard that Antichrist, singular, is coming. I think that's what John's referring to, teaching that Paul gave to the church over a period of two years and that these people remember. John then added to this that not only was this one opponent coming, but many opponents of Christ had already gone into the world and they were actively operating in that same spirit as they are today. John was not trying to correct Paul. He was not so much uh, trying to add to his teaching so much. He's just trying to fill it out by saying that the spirit of Antichrist, whoever that person is, is already operating in the world and the opponents of Christ are hard at work in this world so that many Antichrists have already filled the earth. These are all preparing for the day when one great specific man will rise up with a global voice and seek to lead the people astray, including the people of God. Many antichrists leading to the day when the one great antichrist will come. And I only call him great because he will be famous throughout the earth whenever he comes. It seems to me that the reason John points to this, the presence of many antichrists as proof that it's the last hour He thought about that, he said, therefore we know it's the last hour. Why would he point to their presence as proof that it's the last hour? I think the principle is pretty simple. Motion causes friction. 
When the kingdom of God begins to advance, the enemies of God rise up to oppose it. It is stunning to look at the history of the Jews and see how many people arose in the basic days of Jesus to claim that they were the Christ. An era like no other era in the history of the Jews before or since. Why did so many rise up to say that they were the Christ in that particular era? Because the kingdom of God had come, beloved. And when the kingdom of God came, the enemies came out. And they began to oppose, they began to deceive, they began to try to persuade the people of God away from the things of God. The opponents of Christ proved the presence of Christ in the world. That's my point. The opponents of Christ prove that we are in this time of fulfillment where all things are coming to pass. And surely it would be helpful for me to encourage you now that no matter what their schemes are, they will not succeed. Even when Satan thought he got the best of Jesus and hung him on a cross, what happened then? Satan's throat was slit. That's what happened. He was defeated by what he thought was probably the defeat, what he probably thought was the defeat of Jesus. It's amazing to me, maybe even a little bit surprising, that John identifies these antichrists then as human beings and not as spiritual beings. Did you notice that? He calls the false teachers that are trying to deceive the church antichrist. They are the antichrists. I guess for whatever reason in my mind, I would, have, I would have expected him to talk about the spiritual world, but he said, no, these people who are seeking to deceive you, they are opponents of Christ. They're setting themselves up in the place of Christ. They are antichrists. What Paul said is true in Ephesians 6, 12. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, evil in the heavenly places. Our main spiritual battle is with spiritual forces. And if I take John's way of thinking about Antichrist, I would not hesitate to call a person like Joel Osteen an Antichrist because he is preaching a false gospel and he has refused to repent when people have pointed this out to him. He refuses to turn. He continues to preach, continues to grow, continues to grow his massive personal empire in the name of Jesus. According to John's definition, he is a kind of Antichrist. But I want to tell you something. Joel Osteen is not our enemy. We want his salvation. You know what I'd love to see? The day when Joel Osteen bows his knee before God and says, Jesus is Lord, I have been wrong, and I'm so sorry for my sin. That's the day I want to see. Our enemies are spiritual enemies, but John's point is a very serious point. Those spiritual enemies are at work in the lives of and teachings of those who are intentionally seeking to lead the church astray. And in a sense, everyone who opposes Jesus are antichrists. In a sense, Hindus are antichrists. But that's not the kind of thing John has in mind here. John has in mind here a more difficult to discern, maybe, type of antichrist. The one who was inside the church, speaks our language, walked with us, ate with us, talked with us shared in life with Christ with us, and then left out from us, and after that began to try to deceive the church. It's not just that they left. They left with another gospel, and they continued to try to deceive the church. He has in mind those wolves in sheep's clothing who are not afraid to tell lies about God in the very name of God. 
So this led me to think about something the other day that I think is an important question. Namely, how can we discern the difference between someone who John would call an antichrist and someone who's just struggling with certain teachings, certain things, and maybe even they publicly teach some things that aren't right, but it isn't because they're antichrist, it's because they're confused. You know, when you get to be a pastor, you'd think that the rule is you have to already know everything, but quite the opposite is true. God takes people who are somewhat prepared and prepares them along the way. And when you really begin to dive deep into the word of God, sometimes you discover things that are confusing and you can find yourself in seasons of confusion because you're dealing with the Bible at levels that you were not dealing with it before. And sometimes teachers begin to teach false things not because they're anti-Christ, but because they're confused. And when they're confronted, they usually are, are humble about that, at least eventually they are humble about that. So how do you tell the difference between someone who's struggling, maybe even publicly, and maybe even not wisely, and someone who's actually antichrist? Well, there are a number of tests that could be given, but here's the test that John gives in this text. In this text, John says they break fellowship with the church. And they break fellowship with the apostles. When he said they leave us, I hear in the word us, the apostles, and their teaching, because John's used we and us this way many times, and I also hear in the word us, the church. So this is where I'm getting this from. They left from us because they were never of us. They broke fellowship with the apostles and the things they teach, trying to teach alternative truths because they never belonged to Jesus to begin with. They left the church because they were never truly part of the church. Oh, they attended the church. They seem to be active in the church, but they were not truly part of the church as God sees it. And because they broke fellowship with the apostles in their teaching, because they broke fellowship with the church, I think John's point is they broke fellowship with God himself. If the Antichrist had truly been in Christ, they would have remained faithful to the church, faithful to the apostles and their teachings, even if they had to struggle through some things, even if there were difficulties. Just because somebody leaves the church in a divisive manner does not mean that they're antichrist. There have been people who've left this church in a way I wish they would not have left this church, but they're not antichrists. There's a whole host of reasons why people come and go from churches. We're talking here about a specific type of people, beloved, who rise up from inside the church but really believe alternative things, and when they can't get what they want done inside, they leave, but then their life is really about deception. It's about deception. So we have to be wise here. Not everybody who's teaching difficult things, not everybody who leaves the church is an antichrist, but those people who not only seek to leave the church, but then intensely oppose the teaching of the Bible and seek to deceive the church, that's the type of person John has in mind. They are antichrists. The one who loves Christ cannot hate the church for whom he died. Even if he or she has issues with the church, that takes some time to work out. That happens sometimes. People have struggles. There's grace for that. But the person who is truly in Christ cannot ultimately hate what God loves so much that he sent his son to die for. You hate the church. I don't know how you could possibly love Christ and people who break away and try to deceive the people of God. How could they possibly know God? How could they possibly know God? So John, he wants us to understand two things. He's a pastor to us this morning, and he wants us to get a couple things. Persistent false teachers are not merely false teachers. They are antichrists. 
And their presence in the world is proof that we're living in the last days. The kingdom of God is advancing, and that's why the opposition is so fierce. Second, while there are many kinds of antichrists in the world, I think John is trying to focus our attention on those most dangerous ones that rise up from within us, depart from us, and then seek to use our own language and culture to deceive us. Those are the most dangerous types. Partly, by the way, one of the reasons they're the most dangerous because they're often very charming. Origen, an early teacher in the third or fourth century, came very close to succeeding to turn the church away from Orthodox Christianity. He came very close. He was one of the nicest, most charming guys you would have ever met. This is what was written about him. The people that rose up to oppose him, they were often said to be arrogant. They were often said to be hard. They're often said to argue and be maybe even a little angry. Personality-wise, they were fighters. Origen was a lover, and he was a heretic. He was an antichrist, beloved. They're very dangerous. They know how to use our own language to turn the church against itself. With this in mind, John turns, by the way, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean Origen, I meant Arius. Origen, there's other problems with this guy named Origen. If you know church history, you're probably going right now in your heart, what's wrong with you? Arius is the guy I was talking about. Origen, there are other issues with him. With this in mind, if you'll notice in verses 21 and 22, John now turns his attention to the church. This is what he has to say about the teachers. He wants to put his focus on that, and now he wants the church to understand something. He encourages them with all of his heart by assuring them that they are not like the antichrists, and they're really not susceptible, ultimately, to the antichrist. You know why? Because they have received an anointing from the Holy One, and they all knew God. They all knew the truth. We're going to talk about this at length next week. I'm going to spend a whole message talking about this verse and everything that surrounds it. But for now, I just want to say that this word anointing always refers to a, po- a person who is appointed and empowered for a particular task or a particular role. Prophets were anointed. Kings were anointed. Priests were anointed. They're being set apart for God for some specific reason. And here, the anointing that John is talking about is the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that if you put your faith in him, you will get the Holy Spirit. Paul calls this the sealing of the Holy Spirit. Sealing or anointing, really two things, saying, two ways of saying the exact same thing. John is saying, here is what sets you apart, church. It's not just your grasp of theological truth. It's that God has done something for you that he has done for no one else. He has put his Holy Spirit upon you. He has sealed you. He has protected you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Antichrists are fierce. And you know what we need to understand? The God who has sealed us by the Holy Spirit is greater than the Antichrist. We have nothing to fear, beloved. Of course, we need to be aware of our enemies, but this is not exactly a fair fight. God fighting against Satan and his forces, this is not a fair fight. God is greater than all. By infinite amount, he's greater than all. And this God has given us the anointing of his Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that next week. But for now, I just want us to understand John is encouraging the believers. He's saying, listen, here's the spiritual reality in the world, and here's the spiritual reality in your lives. God has sealed you, and God will keep you both now and forevermore. So at the end of verse 20, you'll see that he says that you all have 
knowledge. That's the ESV's way of putting it. You all have knowledge. That verse in, in Greek, there's a couple of you here in this church that know Greek. If you want to look at it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. It's a little bit hard to translate. But I, I think that the NASB gets closer to what John is saying here. I think John is saying, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. That's the way the NSB reads, you all know. So the ESV's way of saying it is basically, you have an anointing from the Spirit, and you all know everything. You know everything you need to know. You're outfitted with truth to face down the enemies. And that's not a bad point, but I don't think it's the point John's making at all. I think the point John is making is to say you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit and all of you, from the greatest of you to the least of you, from the richest of you to the poorest of you, all of you who have put your faith in Christ, you know God. And he is your refuge. He is your fortress. He is your strength. You may remember from some weeks ago that the particular teachers that were coming against this church were trying to argue that they had some special knowledge that caused them to know God so that nobody else but them knew God. And John is saying, listen, they're not right. Here's what's right. You have the Holy Spirit in all of you. All of you from the greatest of the, to, the leadest, you know, to, to the least, you know God. Look at what John says in verse 21. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. And we know that John is talking about ideas here. He's talking about the content of the gospel. But ultimately, we know it was John who recorded the words of Jesus, who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. To truly know the truth is to truly know God, who is truth. And this is what John is saying. You need to be aware of your enemies, but you should not be afraid Sometimes I hear Christians talking about the reality of spiritual warfare around them as though there's something to be afraid of. And all I want to say is, you're probably right to understand how fierce your enemies are, but would you just lift up your head and see how great your Father is? If you just look at the glory of your God, you'll understand your enemies have no way to get to you unless your Father gives them permission. And if he gives them permission, he has a purpose. And if he has a purpose in letting my enemies strike me, I'll take it. I'm not afraid to be struck by the will of my Father, but I have nothing to fear. If I was to try to take Satan on on my own, I would be a stupid man. But I'm not trying to do that. I'm putting my faith in Jesus, and Jesus has already defeated him. And so, since we know God, beloved, we simply have nothing to fear. This leads us to the second cycle, where John now more clearly defines the problem with their teaching, and then he encourages the church again. So let's now look at verses 22 through 25. John writes, who is the liar, but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the anti-Christ, the instead of Christ, the opponent of Christ, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Father, the Son, has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he has made to us, eternal life. John has said something about the presence and the meaning of the many antichrists in the world. And now he wants to help us understand that the antichrist is the one who continually denies that Jesus is the Christ. Now there are lots of ways that you can deny that Jesus is the Christ. Lots of different ways that you can deny that he is who God sent him to be. And so maybe we could just broaden it out and say this. 
that the Antichrist is the one who persistently, continually teaches lies about the nature, person, life, and teachings of Jesus. The one who is persistently teaching lies about Jesus to twist the gospel and to deceive other people, that person is an Antichrist. And the reason that I use the words persistently and continually is because that's the way that John writes the verb, denies. The way he writes it is he's talking about ongoing denial. As I said a little bit earlier, he's not talking about people who get into seasons of struggle and maybe for a while deny key doctrines, but when they're confronted, they'll repent. He's not talking about people who really do have a heart to conform to the truth, but in the process of conforming, sometimes they get some vital things wrong. This is not who he has in mind. He's talking about the person who is denying and denying and denying and denying and denying and will not repent. That person, in John's mind, is an antichrist. It is possible to be in Christ and yet for a season to believe and even teach false things, but when you're confronted, you will repent. The Antichrist has no such heart at all. In fact, when an Antichrist is confronted, they will dig in harder and push harder. And sometimes they do it in a real subtle, nice way with that southern smile that Joel Osteen has. Some of the top evangelicals in the world have sat across the table from him and tried to help him see his error, and he will not see And with the nicest smile on his face, he continues to grow an empire that is a false gospel. Sometimes their persistence seems really nice, but what I'm saying is the spirit of the Antichrist is that they simply will not repent. They will double down is what will happen with them. This is who John has in mind. And what he's saying is that teachers like these, when they deny the Son and vital things about the Son, they also deny the Father. When they teach lies about Jesus, they're also teaching lies about God. When they abandon Jesus, they're actually abandoning God. They will often say, oh, I don't believe all that stuff about Jesus, but I love God. I know God. They're lying. They are not telling the truth. Here's what Jesus himself said to people who were trying to make this argument. People were trying to tell Jesus, we love God, but we reject you. Here's what he said. You know neither me nor my father. You do not know God. If you knew me, you would know my father also. And then the other way around, he said, if God were your father, you would love me because I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but God the Father sent me. It is impossible to know the father and reject the son. And that's, but that's what antichrists do. They perpetually reject the biblical teaching about Jesus and they try to claim that they know God and they are liars. This is who John has in mind, beloved. This is the Antichrist, even in our day. John isn't just talking about people who existed way back then. He's talking about people who have persistently existed in the history of the church from then to now. They exist in our day. We'll talk more about that next week. But just want to get really clear about this. The Antichrist is the one who perpetually, continually twists teaching about Christ. Christ, and yet claims to know God, may even claim to be preaching the true gospel. Having made the heart of this problem clear, John turns back to the church and he encourages us to take one specific action and he encourages us to cling to one particular promise. If you look there, the action is so simple. He says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. 
Or if I could put that in different words, he's saying, let the gospel that you believe. This is what they heard from the beginning. They heard the gospel and they believed in it. Let this gospel that you believed continue to dwell in you, continue to dominate your life. Because when you believe the gospel, you believe the truth. You did not believe a lie. So persist in believing. Cling to the gospel. Believe the gospel. And John says that one of the reasons this is so incredibly important is because if we will allow the gospel to keep on abiding in us, then we will keep on abiding in Jesus Christ the Son and in God the Father. Do you see the connection between clinging to truth and knowing God? It's like I told you at the beginning of the service, truth matters because God is a God of truth. God reveals himself through the truth, and so we cannot reject the truth and say that we know God. The only way to know God is to embrace the truth, and this is what John is saying. You want to know how to combat the Antichrist? Think about your own life. Abide in the truth. Cling to the gospel. The antidote to the Antichrist is truth. The antidote for the Antichrist is the true knowledge of God as expressed through the gospel. The antidote for the Antichrist is the anointing that has been given to us so that we are forever set apart by God and safe in his loving arms. So as I said earlier, we should be aware of our enemy, but oh God, keep us from fearing our enemy or fretting because of him. We should fear God alone. Seek God alone. Fix our minds and eyes on God alone. Saturate our lives with his words and know that by his words we will overcome the evil one. We will overcome this world. As we do, beloved, I pray that we will learn to heed the loving counsel of our brother in Christ, the Apostle John, and cling to this promise that God has made. Look at verse 25. Simple little verse, and yet everything is right there. And this is the promise that he has made, eternal life, eternal life. What he's saying is if you will abide, you will have eternal life. He's not saying that this is the reward for your labor in Christ. He's saying that this is a function of God keeping his promises. God promised that everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. That's his promise. And John is saying, abide because God is a promise keeper. As Ethan so eloquently said over the communion table, God will love us to the very end. He will finish this work that he began in us forever. He will finish this work. And if you remember, Jesus' great and stunning prayer in the upper room, he defined eternal life like this. He said, Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and him whom you have sent. Jesus said that eternal life is the relational knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. That is eternal life. Eternal life is not just life that goes on forever and ever, although it is that, but the heart of eternal life is knowing God. And this is the reward for all who persist in God as God works in their lives and keeps his promises to the very, very, very end. So beloved, it is the last hour, this truth. We're living in the last hour even as we speak right now. And we know that this is so because many, many antichrists are at work in the world seeking to deceive the church away from Jesus and break our fellowship with God. But as I said, we need not fret, we need not fear. Only, we need only listen to our brother John and begin by looking within. We need to begin by looking to God and confessing our own sins, agreeing with him that we have sinned. We need to receive his grace 
that forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And having received his grace, we also receive the power to walk with him day by day by day, abiding in him as he abides in us. And as we uh, walk with him and abide with him, John says, love one another. And then, and then as your heart and your life is right before God, of course, look outward. Think about what people are teaching you. Think about who they are and what they're trying to do. And if they are antichrist, pray for them. Seek to persuade them. Never give up until the day they die or we see them converted. This combination of relational unity with God and intellectual discernment that comes by the word of God, this will keep us safe until the day when Jesus Christ returns. We don't need advanced degrees in theology. We don't need to read a lot of theological books. If you have a Bible and a prayer life, If you have the seal of the Holy Spirit upon you, you're going to be good, beloved. Look to God. He will give you all the power that you need to overcome the enemy. We need not fear anyone but the Lord. And so let me just close with a simple suggestion to you, an encouragement tomorrow morning. When you wake up, put God first. Put him first. Maybe you work early and it's hard for you, but even if all you have is three minutes, I just want to encourage you. Say, good morning, Lord. I care about you. I want to hear from you. Read a short psalm. Read a paragraph from 1 John. Just get something in your mind. Let your Father's voice begin to speak into your life. And as he begins to speak, talk to him throughout the day. Pray without ceasing. Live in communion with your Father. And when you have time, spend some more time in his word, not as a matter of duty, but as a matter of a son or a daughter coming before their Father and saying, Oh, Father, speak to me. Teach me. Fill me up, outfit me for life in this world, and your Father will do just that. By his grace, for his glory, he will do just that. Beloved, let's pray that God will help us. Father, I thank you for telling us the honest truth about the enemies that are surrounding us and that we are facing in this life. But I thank you for guiding us in this most simple way, that the solution is to turn our heart towards you through Jesus Christ. So help us, Father to be quick to confess our sins. Help us, Father, to seek to abide with you day by day more than anything we want in this life. Help us, Father, to learn what it means to love one another with the very love that flows from heaven. And then help us, Father, to discern the difference between truth and error, to stand for truth, to stand against error. And Lord, I just wanna take one more second and pray for our enemies. Those who have been named this morning and those who have remained unnamed, Lord, we want their salvation. Oh God, please send your mercy upon the Antichrist. Cause them to turn before they die and face the judgment. For what you will do in us and through us, for what you will do in the world, for the glory of your name, we give you our great thanks and praise in Jesus' name, amen.